So church, did any of you have a snow day this week? Do any of you get snow days? No. Would any of you like a snow day? Yeah, sure you would if you didn't have to deal with the snow, right? How is that, Chad? When it snows, you get busier, don't you? Everybody's looking for ice melt and shovels and complaining and fussing. Oh, yeah, that's tough stuff. Well, God bless you all. These are those kinds of times that we are reminded that Indeed, God is in everything. And God just has an incredible mind for variety, doesn't he? I mean, God created this earth and kind of set it into motion. And I don't expect that he would have had to create the weather. And yet God said, there's going to be a season. There are going to be seasons. Every part of the world has a different variety of seasons and different extremes, right? But, but here in this part, he says, no, it's going, to, it's going to snow. It's going to rain. It's going to be warm. It's going to be cold. I just continue to be impressed as the seasons change, seeing how the Lord has this set of creativity and, and says, you know what? I'm going to put it in Jesse's heart to just get excited every time it snows. And I look outside and how did God dream up? You know, I'm going to have this flaky white stuff and it's just going to pile up on the ground. I mean, what an amazing Lord we serve just, just to have created all of that. I know some of you think that snow might be coming from somewhere else because you hate it. For you, it means work. And for you, it means toil. But boy, what an amazing God we serve. Now today, uh, before we get started any further in this sermon, I want to highlight uh, one of our sister churches. Um, and for 2022, I want to be going through this, uh, just praying for different churches in our area, different churches that we relate to. Today, I want to pray for Living Faith Fellowship. Living Faith Fellowship is a church in Souderton, Pennsylvania, a little bit north and east of here. Living Faith is an AMEC church. AMEC stands for the Alliance of Mennonite Evangelical Congregations. That's a group that we're part of, uh, about 28 churches that network together. And today they are installing Pastor Cliff Garrett as their pastor. He's been there as an interim for about a year. He was an associate pastor at Indian Valley Faith Fellowship before that. But this is Cliff and his wife and his four kids. And so they're being, he's being installed today as the permanent pastor moving forward. So I thought it made sense for us to pray for them. Okay, so would you take a minute along with me, and we'll pray for Living Faith Fellowship, but also for Pastor Cliff and his family as they get uh, involved there as leaders. Can we pray together? God, I am thankful that you are at work all over the place, not just here with us and not just with the people that we see every day, but even with our brothers and sisters in Souderton. And I pray for Pastor Clint and for... um, I'm sorry, for Pastor Cliff and for his family. I pray that, uh, that his family and church will pronounce his name better than I do. But Lord, I pray that you'll bless him as he steps into this role of leadership, as the elders there rally around him, as their church continues their mission to share the truth of Jesus Christ with their community. Lord, I pray that you would bless that church, bless that pastor, and help them to be fruitful in their work. Thank you, God, for this chance we have to pray for them. I pray that you will lift up all the prayers that they have lifted for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Also, if you need anybody else to pray for, you can pray for Pastor Doug Groff. Doug is a pastor at Derry Mennonite Church near Danville, about a hundred and some miles north of here. Um, Doug and I both, it kind of worked out this way, we're both starting a series on the Gospel of Mark today. And so they're going to be going through the same thing. If you hear this sermon and you don't care for it, um, this afternoon you can look up Dairy Mennonite Church and see what he has to say. Maybe he'll give you a good one. All right. But today we are in Mark chapter 1. We're in chapter 1, verses 1 through, well, we'll see how far we get. And here's what it's about. Two big points for you. Okay. Spoiler alert. If you like suspense, just plug your ears for a moment. But here's where this sermon is going. 
This sermon is going to remind us that we ought to know our history, but we need to live in today. Know your history, but live today. Okay? And then the second thing that this sermon is going to be about is don't be afraid of being different. So know your history, but live today, and don't be afraid of being different. This is what I'm going to be talking about with you. And so uh, Ross read for us from Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. There's this prophecy, and we're going to see that some of this can be applied to John the Baptist. In Malachi chapter 4, Ross read that surely the day is coming. It'll burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And so all these bad things are going to pass away. But for those who revere God's name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing. And those of us who love the Lord, it says, we will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. It says we will, we will jump like calves released from the stall, depending on exactly which translation you might read. <laughs> Earlier this week, I guess it was on Sunday night, I got to play some basketball um, with Kevin Martin, but then with Brandon Martin and some younger guys. I haven't played basketball for about four years. I had to retire because my wheels don't work anymore. But uh, I got an invitation. I thought, that sounds fun. I was getting a little stir crazy. It was Sunday night. And, and so I went out and, and played some basketball. And what I realized when I was playing is that I can still think about the game. I can still see the game. But when that ball comes off the rim and I'm in a perfect position with a guy on my back to go and get that ball, I can't get there anymore. Because I used to be able to leap, not a lot, but a little bit. And now I can't at all. Josh, you're laughing. Do you know what I'm talking about? There was a time when that ball was up there and you just go get it. And now I've got this guy that's 30 years younger than me and I can push him around and I can keep him where I need him to be. But as soon as the ball is there, I think I'm going to go get it. And he just jumps above me, swipes it and goes the other way. And I can't keep up. And so I played last week and I had a blast, but now I'm retiring again <laughs> because it's just very clear that that's, that's not something that my body can do anymore. My knees were still sore this morning when I woke up. And so it's, it, the time has passed. But what does Malachi tell us? There's a time coming. And some of you can really relate to this. You can picture this right now. There is a time coming when the joy of the Lord and the reality of the Lord and the presence of the Lord will be such that we will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. And God will have given us new bodies and God will give us a new reality so that we can do that. It won't just be something that we used to be able to do. It won't be just something that we imagine or that we wish we could still do. But we will frolic like well-fed calves. We don't have any calves at our house. We have a couple of kittens. They were, they were late summer kittens, and we ended up with three of them at our house. And they're just at that spot where they're perfect. If I, could, if I could hit a pause button and they don't grow anymore, they'd be perfect. But they follow me around like three little puppies. And when any of us gets home, you know, we open the garage door, and, and they come running, just bouncing the way just a three-month-old kitten can. You know what I'm talking about? I, I hear these calves frolicking. I hear how we're going to be. I picture those kittens, and I think... Oh, Lord, bring that day. Won't that be something? Malachi, 400 years before Jesus, talked about how this day is coming. God is going to bring this about. There is, there is this thing that is going on. That's Malachi. That's a little bit of background. Now we get into the book of Mark. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark was written um, after Jesus walked on this earth after he died on the cross and after he ascended into heaven. Um, Mark was a disciple of Peter. You've heard of Peter. 
Peter, the one who was Jesus' rock, the one who was Jesus' disciple, the one who often stuck his foot in his mouth and said things that just, you know, everybody was thinking he was the one that said it. Well, Peter in his later years was one of the great ambassadors for the Christian faith. And, and Mark, or sometimes called John Mark, was one who followed after Peter. And so Mark would have spent years listening to Peter preach, telling about Jesus. Mark would have heard him telling those stories. And, and Peter, of course, was an eyewitness, was right there for those three years that Jesus ministered publicly on the earth. And so Mark, who wrote down inspired by the Holy Spirit, who wrote down this gospel, was not an eyewitness follower of Jesus Christ, but he was a follower of Peter. So have, your, have you ever heard your parents tell stories about people you don't know very well? There are some of those stories that your parents tell, or maybe your grandparents tell, and you could tell that story too, right? Even though you've never seen the person they're talking about. Well, that's a little bit about what Mark would have been going through. I mean, Mark was familiar with Jesus. A lot of people in the area knew what was going on about Jesus. They knew the stories. And now Mark has been sitting under the teaching and the preaching of Peter for years. And he decides to write down these things that Peter talked about. So here in Mark, he opens his gospel this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. And so we're going to pause there for a moment because it sounds like just an introduction, but there's a lot being said and a lot being shown here in this first verse of the Gospel of Mark. Now, many of you know that there are four Gospels in our Bibles that we're reading today. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were all written within about 30 years of each other, okay? So it's not as if one is more authentic or more historical or, or more close to the time. They were all written at about the same time. Matthew and John were both written by eyewitness disciples of Jesus. Matthew and John were both disciples, and so they wrote down what they wrote. The fourth gospel, Luke, was written down by a fellow who was not one of those disciples, but he opens his book, Luke does, by saying, I have endeavored to write down a close and accurate history of all these things that happened. So Luke was kind of almost like a journalist who went back and, and studied and put everything together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all have different shades, different styles, different ways of saying things. Today, we're starting off with this study of Mark who got a lot of his information from Peter. And Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet. And Isaiah said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then in Mark 1 verse 4, Mark begins by telling us about John the Baptist. John would have been a cousin, some kind of a cousin of Jesus related through Mary. And John would have been about the same age as Jesus within a few months, because we know that John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were pregnant at the same time. And so Mark begins his story about Jesus talking about John. So, so really, Mark doesn't begin telling anything about Jesus till Jesus is a grown man. Jesus is probably 30 years old, and Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Now, what's interesting about that is that Mark has skipped over a whole list of stories that Matthew and Luke both talked about in their Gospels. Now, in a normal year, when we wouldn't have been preaching through Revelation, we would have read more of those stories through the Christmas time. We would have read genealogies. How many of you love genealogies? You love family trees, you love histories. I know there's a couple of you. Don't be ashamed. Yeah, some of you love that kind of stuff. 
And Matthew and Luke both open their gospels with that. They say, this was the father of this, and this was the father of this. And they go down through in, in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, and they get to the point where Jesus was born. And then we hear about magi from the east, and we hear about shepherds and angels, and there's no room at the inn. We hear about Jesus after he was born. The angel spoke to his father, Joseph, in a dream and said, you need to go to Egypt. Get out of here. Things are getting hot. You're in danger. You're in trouble. And so Matthew and Luke tell those stories. That's the beginning of their story. That's the beginning of how they present the gospel. And then they eventually catch up here to where Mark is. But Mark says, no, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, now there's John the Baptist. And, and that's, that's encouraging to me because what Mark is reminding us is that there is good news even if you don't know all the history. Mark does not see it as essential that we know who Jesus' parents were, who his grandparents were, who his great-great-great-great-greats were. It doesn't matter to Mark at least not enough to write it down, that we get all that history. Because the beginning of the good news starts with John, who said that there is one coming and his name is Jesus. That's the beginning of the good news. Why do I find that encouraging? Because mine is not a name that gets associated very often with many of the people that I'm with. My last name is Johnson. You doesn't have to call me Johnson, but my last name is Johnson. Oh, that's an old joke, I guess. That, that's, that, Ray J was a long time ago, wasn't he, Chuck? When I started as the pastor at Media Mennonite Church in 2003, I confused a lot of people in the Mennonite circles where I began to move. I grew up in Quarryville, a 20-minute drive from here, not very far away. But starting out here in Oxford, and especially as I got involved in some denominational things and, and mixing with people at other churches in our area, I don't know if all of you are aware of this, because I know we come from different places, we have different backgrounds. But especially in those early years, if I would show up at a different church, and, or churches or pastors were gathering together, some of the older fellows, and not just the older fellows, but especially the older fellows would look at me and say, oh, Jesse Johnson. Okay, we haven't met before. And they would say something like, where do you come from? And this is how the Mennonite game begins. That's the opening line. Where do you come from? Some of you are familiar with the Mennonite game. And I'm not talking bad about it. I'm talking, this is just something that happens. Some of you who have been Mennonites for a long time, you don't realize how different it is that we do this. But the Mennonite game is an attempt to figure out who you are by knowing where you came from. Specifically, well, who was your father? Who was your mother? Not even then, if you're good at the Mennonite game, you talk about grandfathers and grandmothers and great aunts and great uncles. And oh, they came from there and they went to this church. And that's how people get a context. They figure out where you came from. Johnson is not one of those Mennonite names. And so people would look at me and say, oh, Johnson, where do you come from? And I would say, well, I grew up in Lancaster County and that helps people to place me. And then I would often say, well, my mother was a her because that is one of those Mennonite names. And she was a her, and they came from the Halks. And then if you go back far enough, they were from the Metzlers. And there were some whites. And, there, and, and the people would start saying, oh, okay. Was that the ones? I was like, yep, that was the one over there. And then satisfied, they was, okay, we can go on with the meeting. Now we know who you are. We know who this Johnson fellow is, and now we can get to know each other. And I've built some tremendous friendships. But still, when I get together, 
I mean, here at church, we've gathered quite a little collection of Johnsons. Ross, has, Ross came up here and spoke. We're not related at all, but they just showed up. I think Ross and I might be the only two Johnsons in Mennonite leadership in the world. <laughs> but that kind of history is really important to some people. It helps to understand where we come from. And as I talked about today in our Exploring Membership class, that kind of history can have some positive effects, right? Sometimes it's helpful to know who a person's father or mother was, where they come from, what church background they've had. Sometimes that's helpful just to kind of get, oh, okay, this is, this is how you might tend to see things. This is what you grew up with. This is the kind of background that you have. And sometimes it's helpful for us personally because some of us like the parents we came from. Some of us are proud of our father and our mother, our grandfather, grandmother, aunts and uncles. Some of us are proud of our family name. I'm glad to be a Johnson. I'm glad to have come from where I did. And so, so there, can be some, there can be some encouragement there, right? But the name game in whatever setting can be dangerous as well. Because some of us would rather not have anyone know where we've come from. Some of us do not have a heritage that makes us proud. Some of us have a heritage that we would rather no one knew about. I don't want to tell you about my father because he was a scoundrel. I don't want to tell you about my mother because everything about her that I would have to say is negative. There are some of you that have that story, right? Some of you feel like you've come from nowhere. And so history and heritage can be a mixed bag. There are blessings there. There are ancestors of mine who I know, who I loved with all my heart and who loved me well. There are ancestors of mine who were local horse thieves and who made it into the newspaper a hundred years ago. There was an ancestor of mine whose first name was John, but he was called Blackjack. Now see, this is dangerous because there are a couple of you who are sitting here right now saying, I want to ask Jesse about that after the sermon because I think I know that story. And what about... See, we can get wrapped up in that stuff really quickly. And, and while it can be helpful to know a little bit about our stories and say, oh, you know, Foster, where does that come from? Where did, that's not a local name, is it? Where did you come from? Or, oh, Davis. Do you, which Davis are you from? Melrath? Which, oh, you're with, that can be fun, right? But some of us put too much in that. And it can be dangerous. What I like about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark dispenses with all that stuff. He doesn't let us get so wrapped up into it that we begin to think that it's essential. Mark just says, look, you want to hear the beginning of the good news about Jesus? Let me start by telling you about Jesus. I don't need to tell you about his father, his grandfather, his aunt and his uncle, even though that stuff was all good. Mark says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah starts like this. There's a guy named John. John was foretold in, in Isaiah and in Malachi. And John the Baptist, it says in verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John, like Jesus, was a Jewish man. Baptism is not a terribly popular thing in the Jewish culture. In Christian circles, we often baptize people. And there's arguments about how to do that. Some people like to baptize infants. We baptize adults. But as Christians, baptism is pretty much everywhere. Jewish people didn't do baptisms as a matter of course. There was ceremonial washing, and there were those kind of cleanliness things that happened. And if a Gentile person, that is someone who was not a Jew, wanted to become kind of a, a Jewish folk, wanted to worship at the temple, wanted to kind of be brought into that culture and brought into that faith, they would often be kind of symbolically washed and baptized as a symbol of like washing away that old life. 
But this thing that John the Baptist is doing was, was not so common. It wasn't something that everyone did all the time. It wasn't something that Jews said, oh, everybody must be baptized. But this John the Baptist, he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John basically said, look, all of you, and he's speaking mostly to a Jewish audience. These are people who should have known the Lord. They've had the scriptures for 2,000 years. They grew up in, in faithful homes, or at least homes that should have been faithful. They grew up in a culture that knew about the Lord and knew about the law and knew what it meant. Hey, there comes the sun. They knew about, they knew about the Lord. But John appears in the wilderness saying, look, you need to repent. Even you people who know about the Lord, you have not been living for the Lord. You people who know about the Lord, you need to come out and be baptized. In, in effect, kind of have yourselves washed clean because you are filthy. And John was simply commenting on the reality of the day. He said, even those people who should know the Lord the best do not live as if they know the Lord. And John must have been quite a preacher because it says in verse five that the whole Judean countryside, that is the countryside in Judea in the southern part of what we now call Israel, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Remember, these are Jewish people. These are people who have had the law for a long time, but they could recognize that they were not living the way they knew they should. Why? Because it says that they went out confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So now what John was doing is not an exact comparison to what we do today in Christianity as a baptism. We'll get there and we'll see more of this as these weeks unfold. But you can see the symbolism is very close in that John was calling these people to leave behind their sins and leave behind everything about their way of life that was a mess. John is saying to them, your history does not have to define you. And I wonder if that's part of why he skips over the genealogy at the beginning, because Jesus' history doesn't define him. Jesus has been God forever. But Mark is saying, I want you to focus on now. Leave your past behind you. Leave your sins behind you. Even you religious folk, leave all that filth behind you. Let yourself be washed clean. And this is the baptism he brings. Just repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn toward God. Repent. Can you relate to this? How many of you, how many of you grew up in a home where you were taught about Jesus? Maybe you weren't taught perfectly. Maybe it wasn't always shown to you perfectly, but you were taught about Jesus. You came to church. Maybe you came to Sunday school or Bible school. And then as the years went, you got maybe a little bit more serious about Jesus in some seasons, but then a little bit less serious about him in others. Have any of you who grew up around church, who grew up hearing about Jesus, have any of you ever spent a time away from him? Many of us in this room have, haven't we? Even if we kept coming to church, we had times where our hearts were not close to the Lord, where our lives and our conduct was not close to the Lord. Oh, now, a lot of us who come to church, we learn how to play those roles. We learn how to say the right things. We learn how to look right. But but how many of us have spent that time, even though we knew the Lord, even though we knew all the religious stuff, even though we knew how to look right, 
How many of us have spent a season, some of us are still in that season, just walking on our own? Walking not close to Jesus, but walking according to whatever we think is right, whatever our society thinks is right, whatever fashions might dictate. See, this is what happened to these Jewish folks that John is speaking to. This is what happens to us today. And the call is, hey, just come back. There is still time. The world is not over yet. Christ has not come back for the final judgment. So repent. John says, repent. Lay that stuff behind you. Lay that life down. Walk instead with the Lord. That's the call that I give you today. The same thing that John would have said. Now, the amazing thing is, is that because Jesus has come and because Jesus can give us the Holy Spirit, we have a different kind of help even than what these people did who listened to John. But the call is the same. There are some of you who are sitting here today and you're looking fine. You know the words of the songs. You sang along. You knew how to make your way through the lobby and not look like a moron. You didn't have to wonder like, where, where do I go? You learned how to follow along. You might even have a seat that has your indentation right in it. And yet the message that the Lord gives through John that Mark wrote down might still apply. Where is your heart? Where are you at really? I mean, have you given your life to him every area of it, every corner of your conduct? Is it given to the Lord? Is it devoted to the Lord? Because John here, as according to Mark, John says, look, leave that stuff behind. Says that in verse six, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John was a different kind of a dude. He was wearing stuff that was rugged for the wilderness. It wasn't the fashion of the day. This wasn't the kind of stuff that would make him be noticed in church in a good way. John just has this very rugged, very rough, very basic outfit. He eats locusts and wild honey. Locusts, apparently, once you pull the wings and legs off of them, they're just a, a fine source of protein. Now, I'll still take a steak, but you can roast them. You can, you can prepare them a number of different ways. In fact, locusts can even be ground up into like a flour and made into bread. So for John to eat locusts was not absolutely unheard of. In fact, in the Old Testament, locusts were listed as something that was clean. They could, that could be eaten. But it was different because most people would rather not eat locusts. The wild honey, I could wrap my head around that. But this guy, John, he's out in the wilderness. He's calling people to repent. People are responding. It says the whole countryside went out. They're being baptized. They're confessing their sins. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. Here's what he said. He said, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John says, you're coming out to hear what I have to say. You're confessing your sins. You're being baptized in the river. That's wonderful. But this is not even all that there will be. He says, there is one coming more powerful than I. He says, you want to come listen to me? I can't even, I can't even tie this guy's shoes. John says in verse eight, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that John says, I'm calling you to repent. I'm calling you to give your lives back to God. And these Jewish people, they would have understood God. They would have had a concept of God. They would have known that they should live for God. And in the law, they had a framework of how to do that. John says, I'm calling you back to that and I'm baptizing you with water. But there is one who is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And in fact, that's what Jesus did. You can get into Acts chapter 2, you can see how Jesus sent the Holy Spirit on a whole group of his disciples. Jesus talks about how he's going to send the Holy Spirit to his followers. He says, I'm going to give you this counselor, this one who's going to guide you and help you. John says, I'm baptizing you with water. It's good for you to repent. It's good for you to follow back after God. But there is one who is coming who's going to give you even more power than that. There is one who's coming who's going to propel you forward in your walk with the Lord. And John says, it doesn't matter so much about where you've come from, but it matters what you're willing to move toward. And this is what Mark is trying to record for us. Mark says, here is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. He is coming and he is going to give the Holy Spirit. You can know your history You can know where someone comes from. You can play that Mennonite game or that Jewish game or that Methodist game or whatever the group is that you're part of, that farmer game, that teacher game. You can play that game and figure out everything about a person. But knowing that history is not nearly as important as living today. No one is saved by their past and no one is doomed by their past. What Mark is saying, what John is saying is that you will have to follow after this one who can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 9 that at that time, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, did Jesus have sins that he needed to be delivered from? No. No, he didn't. Jesus was a perfect person. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus didn't make the mistakes that we make. But Jesus came out And he showed the people that he was indeed oriented toward God with all that he had. He was being symbolically washed, showing them that he is prepared to walk forward with the Lord. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. But I want to read for you verses 10, 11, and 12 so you can see where we're going. Verse 10 says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, said, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Many of you have heard me say it before, but this is one of those few instances in Scripture where we see God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all in the same place at the same time. God the Father speaks from heaven to Jesus the Son and says, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit was descending upon him like a dove. And then after he was baptized, Jesus was sent out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild angels, or sorry, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Mark begins his gospel. Mark begins his gospel with his call from John to prepare the way for Jesus. John is crying out. Mark sees this as so important, and God saw this as so important that he had Mark write it down. He said, Mark, tell the people about John who prepared the way for Jesus. And so here's the question I'm going to leave you with today. Okay? We started off, we talked about Malachi a little bit and calves leaping out from their stall. We talked about Mark and how he was the disciple of Peter and wrote down all the things that Peter talked about, about Jesus. We talked about how It is fine to know our history and our heritage. It is fine to know our background, but we cannot be defined by that. And now I want to remind you that as John 
prepared the way for Jesus. We have an opportunity to do the same. John prepared the way Jesus followed. Jesus said, I'm coming back. And so we still wait for that. And I wonder what we're doing to prepare the way for Jesus. Here's my challenge that I'm going to leave you with. In our membership classes, we talk about what it means to follow after Jesus, what it means to live with Jesus, to be committed to Jesus. There are four things that we're going to talk about in our membership class about markers that committed Christians have in common. Here is a list of things that I think we can be working at, that you can be kind of checking your lives for as you think about preparing the way for Jesus in the world around you. Committed Christians are reading their Bibles regularly and learning how to live it out. This is basic stuff. This is not rocket science, okay? This, this is pretty simple. But this is the kind of stuff that so many Jewish people were overlooking. They had walked away from their scriptures. They had forgotten too much of what their scriptures told them to do. How many of you are reading the Bibles that you own? How many of you are really studying and learning how to live that Bible out on a daily basis? Not just coming to church on Sunday mornings or going to Sunday school or going to your small group to hear Bible studies, but how many of you are daily in God's word? I think there's a challenge there for me and for you. As we know that Jesus Christ is coming back soon, as we know that there will be an end to this world eventually, We've been given this job to be Christ's ambassadors here on earth. And so one of the things we must continue to do is, is read the Bible that God has given us and live it out because our actions speak as loudly as our words. Are you reading your Bible to help prepare the way for Jesus? Are you praying? Committed Christians are praying to God all the time. They've learned that God listens when they talk. We read our Bibles, we pray. How many of you were told to do this before? Yeah, how many of you struggle to do it regularly? Yeah, this is why I'm just kind of reminding you here of these very basic but essential things. We can help to prepare the way for the Lord. Maybe you don't have to live out in the wilderness down by the river with a shirt of hair and a leather belt holding you together. But if you're reading your Bible and living by it, and if you're praying to God all the time, it will make you look different. It will make you look different from the people around you. Have you ever struggled with that? I do. I, like, I think I live in a pretty blessed part of the world. I live around a bunch of good folks, including you and your friends. And yet there are times that I read the scriptures and think, what the Bible is telling me to do is different than what my neighbors are doing. And I have to make a choice about which way I'm going to live. And there have been times when I've been asked, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you living the way that you're living? Why do you prioritize this over that? Why do you spend on this and not that? Do you get those questions? I'm not wearing a shirt of camel's hair. Chafes me. But I'm trying to live differently for the Lord. And you know what? You follow the Bible even here, in this, even here in this world that many people assume to be somewhat Christian. You follow the Bible, you live that way, people are going to be blown away. Honesty is one of those things that is out of fashion. It wasn't too long ago I, I sold a vehicle. When you sell a used vehicle, you go to the title shop and they ask you, how much did you sell this for? So they can calculate how much tax to charge the person who bought the vehicle. 
every time I've sold a used car, the person who was buying it from me asked me to tell a different price than what I actually sold it for. You know, if, if I was selling it for $3,000, they'd say, tell them it was 500 bucks so that they could pay $30 in taxes instead of $180 in taxes. And every time I just look at them and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. And every time I tell the cashier what the real price was and the person buying the car from me goes, oh. and you can hear it. Now, I'm not going to put that person down. They have to live with their decisions. But I know that when I stand there and when I'm asked a question, I know that the Bible instructs me to tell the truth. I know that the Bible instructs me to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and Caesar gets his taxes. I know what I'm called to do, and so I have to do it. Even though I'm going to be honest with you, it's kind of tempting when you're standing there to make that guy who's given me some money think that I'm just a nice, relaxed guy who thinks just like him. Nobody wants to be labeled a goody-goody, do they? Nobody wants to be labeled a, you know, better than you. I don't want to be labeled anything. But I certainly don't want to be labeled by God as a liar. Now that's a little tiny thing. little tiny thing that's happened a couple times in my life. But those are the kinds of things that as we're reading our Bibles and as we pray to God and say, God, how would you like me to live? These are the kind of things that mark us out as different. Not a camel hair shirt, not a leather belt. But I like to think that my honesty makes a difference somehow, some way, in all of eternity. How are you doing in your life with all the little things? How are you doing? We all fail. I fail sometimes. I, I'm not always as good as I'd like to be. I, I don't want to paint this picture that you should do everything exactly the way I do, but let me tell you, there are some things that I've learned to do as I read the scripture that are different than what everybody else does. And so far, I'm still standing. God takes care of those of us who follow after him. Doesn't always make things easy. Doesn't always make things fun. But he makes things right. So I just want to encourage you, church, keep reading your Bible. Read it regularly. Keep praying to God all the time. And know that God hears you. And not in your prayers, don't just pray by speaking to him, but also listen to God. I've had to listen to God sometimes. God, it's uncomfortable to do what I feel like you're calling me to do. God, it's uncomfortable to speak up or it's uncomfortable to keep my mouth shut. Or it's uncomfortable to tell the truth when everybody else seems to be lying. God, this is difficult, but I can't tell you how many times God has spoken to me and just said, press on. And so many of you committed Christians in the room are doing the same thing. You're reading your Bible, you're praying to God all the time, and you're listening for God's leading, trusting God to show you what to do. This is what committed Christians do. This is how we follow after Jesus. This is how we prepare the way for him. And we do all these things privately for sure. Yeah, we read our Bibles at home. We pray at home in our closets, so to speak. But we also do these things in the context of small groups in Sunday school and here at worship services at church. We do this stuff together. We pray together, read together, study together, and we live together so that we can keep each other on track and we can remember that not everybody wants us to lie. 
Not everybody wants us to cheat. Not everybody is living that kind of life that's just contrary to the values that God would put before us. But indeed, there are brothers and sisters who are living the way that we're supposed to live. They can encourage us, drive us forward, and help us to be close to God. And in living this way, we can help to prepare the way for the Lord. Not just relying on history and heritage. Not just following the fashions of the world right now but living the way God has called us to live. Reading things like the book of Mark that can encourage us and remind us to follow the Lord with all that we are. Now, next week, we're going to get into this baptism of Jesus. What did that mean? Why exactly did he do that? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? And why in the world did he go out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days? He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Read that this week, and we'll talk about it on Sunday. Will you pray with me, church? Thank you, God, for everything that you've done and everything that you're still doing to open up our hearts and prepare the way for Jesus to be seen and known and heard. Lord, I thank you that, um, I thank you that so many people in this room do have a godly heritage do have godly families, fathers and mothers and grandparents who taught them about Jesus and who modeled Jesus for them. Thank you, Lord, that I have the family that I have. Thank you, Lord, for my parents and siblings, aunts, uncles, and grandparents. Thank you, Lord. So many of us are blessed. But Lord, I thank you that we are not defined by our families. I thank you that those who are not proud of their families don't have to be slaved to their family reputation but can live their lives for you because of the power of your Holy Spirit and because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I thank you that we're not slaves to our past, but that we can turn away from it and turn to you with all that we are. Lord, I thank you for those in this room who have a testimony of your miraculous work, where you spoke to them, even though nobody else in their world was living for you. Lord, you spoke to them and got their attention, even though there was nobody else who made you a priority. Lord, I thank you for the lives and the hearts that you've changed, that you've drawn to yourself. Thank you, Lord. And now, Lord, as you have called us to go forward and be your ambassadors in this world, help us to prepare the way for Jesus in the hearts of all of our neighbors, of all of our community. Lord, help us to live such godly lives that people look at us and say, wow, God must really be something. Lord, not for our name, but for your name's sake. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have just become kind of numb for those of us who have been beaten up, for those of us who are, are just kind of going with the flow, Lord, I pray that you would call us back. Lord, light a fire in some of us so that, so that we're drawn back to you and that we can live our lives for you with the kind of passion that we once had. Lord, we don't want to be stale. We don't want to be dry. We don't want to be, we don't want to be just laissez-faire, kind of going with the flow. Lord, we want to be yours. And so help us to have the kind of conviction that John had, to live differently, to call people out when they need to be called out. Lord, help us to live with the love of Jesus all the time, with the truth of your word all the time, with the courage that knows that you've got everything in control. Help us to live with that all the time. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together worshiping and praising you. Lord, help us not to just leave it here but to take our faith and our passion with us in all that we do. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, in his name we pray. Amen.
Church, can we sing a closing song together? Would you stand up and sing along?